Welcome to episode 218 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. As many of you know, Energy Media has undertaken an investigative series called Unethical Oil about the Alberta oil and gas industry as viewed through the lens of the Alberta Energy Regulator. Part one set out the unethical oil argument, and part two was about the conventional oil and gas production. Part three, which I've been working on for the past five months, is about oil sands mining. Now, why is it taking me this long? In two words, tailings ponds. There's 28 of these giant ponds that hold 1.7 trillion liters of toxic tailings. This is far and away the most technically complex issue I've ever reported on. Well, today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Bill Donahue, who I've relied upon extensively during my research to explain tailings ponds to us. So, Bill, welcome to Energy Talks. Hi, Malcolm. Nice to be here. Well, nice to have you. Uh, and good to see you again. Uh, you're just down the road in Nanaimo. I suppose I, I could just pop over for a coffee, but no, we're going to do this on, on Zoom today. Uh, and I really appreciate the the hours that you have taken coaching me, explaining tailings ponds to me and other parts of the uh, oil sands, which you have extensive experience with. But this one, I have to say, um, learning it well enough as a layman who doesn't know the science, doesn't have a, a science background, so that I can explain it to a non-science audience is a, re I have to say, it's been a, a big challenge for me. And I want to get it right, because this is so important. This is, the oil sands are the biggest industrial complex in all of Canada. They're stuck away in Northern Alberta. The effect that they have on local Indigenous communities and on the ecosystem is very profound. And so I want to get it right. So can you give us a little bit of your background, uh, your science background and what you've done uh, in the oil sands industry? Sure. Um, well, as a as a scientist, I have a, a doctorate in uh, limnology, which is the study of inland waters, fresh water, generally. Uh, and then also biogeochemistry, which is the interactions, the physical, chemical and biological interactions that all work together or separately or against each other to kind of determine how ecosystems or aquatic ecosystems especially function. Uh, my areas of scientific expertise generally have had to do with, uh, at least in the last you know decade or two, how contaminants move through the environment and where they end up and what interactions occur along the way, what chemical reactions occur, how the transformation of contaminants occur, uh, and then where they end up into food chains, food webs. And then also I'd say broadly, uh, trying to figure out the impacts of watershed disturbance on aquatic systems. And, and I would say broadly applying that to things like groundwater as well as surface water. But my main area of expertise is on, I'd say, watershed dynamics and surface waters per se. But, but recognizing that groundwater is a critical link between watersheds and surface waters. Within your area of expertise, what are two or three key observations that you could share with our, our audience today? <laughs> well, that's an open question. Uh, in relation to tailings ponds? Sure. Yeah, in relation to, to, to tailings ponds. Okay. Well, I'd say starting uh, with the scale. I mean, most people think of, and I'd say this applies to the OS in general. They're vast. The area is huge. And if you told people the size or, you know, picture a really big mine or a big tailings pond, they might picture something, but it's bigger than that. The first time I saw them, I was doing a survey of northern lakes, actually lakes all over Alberta, but flying out of Fort uh, or out of uh, Fort McMurray in a float plane headed north towards Lake Athabasca. It took almost an hour to fly over them in an airplane. Wow. Uh, and so, I mean, the area is huge and the level of disturbance is unparalleled in Canada. And so that's kind of the context or the background upon which 
scientists and say, I'd say the public could consider that for the longest time, industry and the Alberta government insisted that there was no evidence of downstream environmental impacts from the oil sand development, which is just a crazy statement. Given the scale of the disturbance, given that it's literally ripping apart watersheds, and given that it's digging up and processing bitumen, a hydrocarbon resource, uh, there's, there, there's no doubt that there are impacts. And uh, a lot of the scientific stories, controversies, political actions, inactions over the last couple of decades have had to do with this constant tug of war between largely independent scientists uh, and First Nations and environmental groups uh, pointing out either risks or real harms and industry and government denying them, obfuscating them, minimizing them. And, and then in that tug of war, you know, there was an independent monitoring and science agency created to handle it because, it, you know, the Alberta environment and the Alberta government and the regulator along the way were basically their credibility was destroyed publicly and uh, the federal government actually eventually stood up and forced the creation of, of an oil sands monitoring uh, program that was substantially at least at the very beginning independent from industry although since then in the let's call it 10 12 years since it was created it's largely fallen back under the uh the control of industry and the Alberta government Okay, uh, so the, the the size and the disturbance to the area, I, I was talking to Dr. Andre Sobolewski, who worked in the oil sands uh, at, in the, during the 90s, and and then has worked with uh, mining, mining tailings ponds all across the world. And he said, there is no place in the world where we have uh, disturbed a sensitive ecosystem like this and then tried to reclaim it. This is totally new. We, we don't have a clue uh, how to do it. Um, and so then and the second thing would be this, the conflict between industry, the regulators and the scientists and the indigenous communities over, you know, what's going on, what does it mean, what's the impact on the environment, those sorts of questions. So with that as background, please tell, explain tailings ponds to us. Just give us tailings ponds 101. Sure. Well, tailings ponds, and this, they're generally used in the mining industry. Uh, in the oil sands in particular, during the approvals, uh, the environmental impacts, typically these projects, and these are mineable oil sands. We'll put aside the oil sands that are too deep that are developed via SAGD and other things. Mineable oil sands. So they basically dig up the top 100, 150 meters of watershed, ecosystem, fans, whatever's there, forest, uh, and that's what they access the bitumen layer with. In their approval, the big, the big concern, of course, is the downstream effects. You know, we have to protect the Athabasca River, the tributaries that all these mines are in the watersheds of, and ultimately not only ecosystems, but the downstream people, First Nations for the most part, in Fort Mackay and uh, Fort Chippewan. Uh, and then, of course, there's the airsheds, but we'll forget that for a minute. So tailings ponds, in their approvals, all of these mines were basically supposed to be closed loop systems where the liquid or the contaminants in liquid form, the pollution, does not leave the, the lease area. It's contained. And so they dig up the bitumen. If they then use steam or some other, you know, chemical mixes to separate the bitumen from sand or the, the oil, the hydrocarbon from sand. And, uh, and then they've got all of these process affected waters, tailings that they then pipe and dump into these big ponds. And many of them are, or a lot of the area has sort of their mind areas that they kind of fill in the hole in some cases in a lot of in a lot of the projects that's sort of the where it starts or where it ends up and so you end up with these vast 
really lakes of just a toxic stew of heavy metals, organic contaminants, hydrocarbons, naphthenic acids. It's, it's a very com chemically complex mixture. It's very physically difficult to deal with because there are these ultra-fine particle tailings, uh, you know, back 30, 40 years ago when they were sort of saying, oh, it'll be great. All the solid stuff will settle out. We'll be able to, you know, maybe treat the liquid on top. It'll, you know, the reclamation story is, looks really positive. Uh, they then discovered that they actually, these fine tailings don't settle out anywhere nearly the way they predicted or thought they would. And so the reclamation of the tailings has proven to be a huge problem. And so the area of the tailings has just grown and grown and grown. And of course, they've also been approving new projects all the time, which come with new tailings ponds. Now the tailings, of course, with the water, a lot of water evaporates out at the top. That's kind of one way to get rid of it. In many cases, the, uh, the, the berms that surround the tailings are made out of sand and some other things. They're permeable. So they're actually designed to kind of leak. They're supposed to be leaking laterally. So if you sort of think of a, you know, above ground swimming pool, if it's leaking laterally, then they've got these systems to collect the tailings water as it comes out and then just pump it back over. Essentially, that's kind of the summary. Uh, but of course, you know, as especially people who've been paying attention have seen recently, uh, there have been some fairly substantial leaks, spills, whatever you want to call them, uh, semi-eruptions of tailings water showing up in surface water off the leases. What you're referring to is the uh, leak that was discovered, basically uh, process affected water from tailings ponds came to surface. And in, uh, I believe it was discovered in May of 2022, um, the company and the uh, regulator didn't tell the down, the indigenous communities downstream, which really became the political controversy. But you and I have had some extensive uh, conversations about how that worked because there are at least three layers of monitoring wells and so there are these are these wells that start close to the tailings ponds and then they go out some distance from the tailings ponds there's another layer and then there's the regional uh wells off that, that are off lease and these wells are supposed to detect the presence of all of those chemicals and volumes of water uh, over time. And every year there is a uh, groundwater monitoring report that each company has to provide about the tailings pond. And the argument that you made that nobody else I had heard, and, and by the way, others like Mandy Olsgaard, the former AER toxicologist, agrees with you on this. And that is that those reports starting in 2015, 2016, up until 2022, showed a pattern of higher concentrations of chemical and higher or greater volumes of seepage, process-affected water, it's called, showing up further and further from the tailing spots. And you argued that that was an early warning system, that the company and the regulator who reviewed these reports should have Look, and they know these trends. The trends are like I've read the reports, and it says right in there, trend noted, and you know it, it succeeded. In some cases, it succeeded. Tier one Alberta guidelines, that sort of thing. And all they did was continue to monitor. They never took action. They never investigated. And you argued that had they investigated as they should have, as the data indicated, then they probably would. The very good chance that they would have discovered this issue before it became came to surface. Uh, have I got that correct? Um, well, sort of. I'll, I'll point out first, when it was first, I think you had just said something like they first detected or first found the leak in May of 22. Um, that was the first time someone noticed this discolored water appearing in a creek off the lease in the headwaters of the Firebag River. 
Now, going back to those annual monitoring reports of the groundwater provided by Imperial or Curl, whichever the corporate umbrella is called, that goes into the AER every year, there was evidence of this growing groundwater plume. So the, you know, if, if you start, if you think about what it would look like on the day that they started operation, they've got a, an empty tailings pond and they've got some monitoring wells around it and they start tump, dumping tailings into the pond. None of those chemicals are gonna be showing up in any of the groundwater in any of the monitoring wells nearby. Fast forward a few years, oh, concentrations start to increase of some of these indicator chemicals that are in tailings that they look for that shouldn't be in the groundwater. And then a few more years, it's showing up in higher concentrations in the closest wells and now in new wells further away. So it's you've just kind of got this, it's almost like a, a groundwater balloon just growing in size. You've called it a plume and I've, I've seen yes. that many times. So <clears throat> underneath each tailings pond, as I if, if I understand you correctly, there is a plume of contaminated water. It doesn't go away, doesn't get emptied or collected. It, there's That plume is there all the time, correct? Well, I'd say in this case, it's certain to be there under this particular tailings pond. You just sort of say it under every tailings pond. I would say most likely, but who knows? We'll, we won't say that for now. Um, because these ponds are designed to leak and because the, I don't know what you would call it, the prediction, projection, promise of the engineers during the approval is, oh, trust us, it's, it's okay this way, the stability of the berm is maintained and we'll just collect everything that flows out through it and, and pump it back over. So I guess in that regard, you could say anywhere where there's a designed porous tailings pond and a recollection system, there is a plume. But if it's actually working the way they say it would, it would be in kind of a steady state where the concentrations wouldn't be increasing in these monitoring wells and they wouldn't be, be showing up further and further away. And of course, groundwater was moving through this ground, the, the basically the material below where this mine went, it's been moving through there forever. And we've basically just dug a hole and it's the groundwater has continued to move through. And so this plume essentially is, you know, it's, it's sort of up, call it upstream from the groundwater perspective. It's uncontaminated or at least not contaminated by this mine. And then downstream in whichever way the groundwater is flowing, that's kind of where this contaminated plume starts and then continues to flow in that direction. So, so yeah, and uh, I mean, if you looked at the approval for the curl, uh, even at the approval stage in the in impact assessment provided by the company, they estimated, if I recall, it was uh, something like a cubic, cubic meter per second. I, of tailings that were gonna be flowing out of this pond. That was their designed and or predicted leakage rate that they had to account for in terms of coming up with some kind of tailings management, recollection, repumping system. So, so it's not like it was designed to begin with and everyone was thinking, oh, the tailings will go in and they'll just stay there. So, so that's in that, in that particular one, uh, right from the start, everyone knew there's going to be a pretty big flow of tailings out of this thing. Um, but yeah. And so these monitoring programs, and again, if you look at the curl approval, any re the reason you do environmental monitoring is so that you can get an early warning. It's an early warning system. And in the in approval, it's described that way. It's an early warning system. Uh, everyone who actually at least does any kind of scientific monitoring, I would say that is not impacted in terms of how it's done by non-scientific factors or people, that's what it's for. That's how it's run. 
And so ultimately you look for changes. Is there significant change in the chemistry, in the flow rates, in the concentrations, volumes, whatever? And if there is, that's the trigger for some kind of action, whatever it is. Do you need to monitor more? Do you need to do start doing more scientific studies? Do you need to go back to operations and say, hey, your tailings pond is not performing the way it was predicted to, we got a problem. And so it's that point where apparently uh, everyone forgot that part of the, the purpose and responsive nature of a monitoring that a monitoring program is, is part of. Sort of, no. you know, adaptive management is a term that government and industry always like to use, especially in the promise stage. Uh, and this basically shows that there was absolutely none. There's no responsive or adaptive management in the face of clear evidence that the pond is not performing the way it was supposed to. Right. And anyone who's interested can go to our YouTube channel where I interviewed Professor Martin Olashinsky, who's an environmental law prof at the University of Calgary, who explained many of the problems with adaptive management as as practiced in the oil sands, where he basically says, look, you use the adaptive management when you don't have a solution at the approval stage. You say, we'll figure it out as we go. And and it's like hocus pocus. You just the, the you know the the approval the review panel says, oh okay, well then you'll be doing an iterative process where you learn as you go and you and you fix these problems. And that's not the way it's practiced in in the real world. Oh yeah, I'd say actually that's not really adaptive management. Adaptive management is kind of a I would describe it as it's sort of a a process of staged response or staged regulatory action each stage that's triggered by a pre-identified action, instance, occurrence, flag, whatever. And so what you just described, and certainly that's how it is, approving a major project when we know we don't know how to deal with a particular kind of problem, but trust us, first of all, there's no chance, little chance it'll happen, so we'll say there's no chance. And if it does happen, well, it'll be far enough in the future that we'll we'll have discovered how to figure how to deal with that later. So that I'd say that's just wishful thinking and pretending that you're engaged in adaptive management. Because if or if you have a technical problem and you have no idea idea how to solve it or deal with it, there's no management to do. <laughs> All you can do is sit yes. back and and watch it happen. So in uh, this, if, you're, if you're actually paying attention, of course. In this case, then, as I mean, the in the uh, curl groundwater monitoring reports, some of these you know issues were flagged, and they the recommend recommended action was to monitor or sample quarterly, and sometimes monthly instead of annually, and so so there was more sampling taking uh, taking place. But nowhere in there did anybody say, hey, we should see if we've got a problem and maybe we should take remedial action here. Yeah, and I'd say that's a that's a very common response at a regulatory level uh, in Alberta. And I would in that I would I would throw in Alberta environment. Because it seems, and I don't know if it's because the people working in the regulators actually believe that monitoring is really a response to a problem, as opposed to what it really is. I mean, if you've got a monitoring program and it's supposed to be your early warning system of a problem, and then when a red flag goes up, you say, well, we have to do more monitoring because our early warning system doesn't provide us enough information to tell us either what's going on or alternatively where this problem's going in terms of like figuratively, I guess, and literally, then it speaks to your monitoring having been insufficient to begin with. And so I'd say that's another wrinkle in terms of designing a monitoring program. Unless you want to face a potential problem that is very significant and first discover it 
and then know that you're going to have to take some undefined amount of time to gather more information before you can respond to it. Unless that's your goal and that's your plan, which I'd say isn't really much of a plan, then you actually have to design a much better monitoring program to begin with and then have some kind of clear understanding about what are the reactions that are going to be triggered at each step along the way. And of course, almost none of that is ever done beforehand. The, the problems that you and I delved into with the, the curl leak, are, are we seeing the same or similar problems with the other 27 tailing spawns, which most of which have been there much longer? Uh, well, I, I can't, I don't know for sure. I'm not, I haven't looked at any of the long-term monitoring reports that are filed with the regulators for any of those. Uh, that said, there have been, you know, a reported, there have been reported problems, spills, leaks with tailing spawns. Curl is not a very old project. It was approved in the 2000s, if I recall. And of course, this problem started showing up pretty quickly. And of course, at the time, Curl was approved on the basis of this sort of, let's call it tailings pond technology, the, the state of tailings ponds at the time when Curl was approved. This was basically, we're going to use the best understanding of tailings. So I guess one could argue that Curl is one of the more recent projects using a tailings pond should have had better tailings pond performance than everyone else. It, it doesn't seem to make much sense that they would have a lot worse if they were able to learn from mistakes or shortcomings beforehand. Now, that said, it's been widely known uh, in industry, in the regulators, amongst scientists who've been working in this field in relation to oil sands, it's been widely known for a long time that the tailings ponds are leaking. Uh, I was at a meeting once. Uh, it was back when Alberta was coming up with their water for life policy and programs. I was invited as a sci independent scientific uh, kind of expert participant in these meetings. And in the introductory uh, kind of greeting that the uh, person gave to this meeting slash conference, uh, he talked about this new report that had come out uh, and in which they estimated something like 20% of tailings were, were flowing out the bottom of tailings ponds in a way that was unaccounted for uh, and not part of this kind of designed leakage pumping thing. And uh, at the time I was very surprised that he'd, he'd talked, he said this, and then he sort of said, you know, that's, that estimate of 20%, because this particular report that had been released by a, an independent group uh, got a lot of attention and it was pretty controversial and industry and government were you know, all in an uproar over this. At this largely industry and government and regulator meeting I was at, he sort of said, well, you know, that 20%, that's reasonable. That's a, that's a reasonable estimate of likely what's going on. And so I was surprised that he said that, but I was even more surprised that him saying that had no discernible impact in that room. I've been in a lot of these meetings. If someone says something controversial, there may be some people shouting. There may be, you know, the, the room becomes visibly and audibly uncomfortable and murmuring and nothing. Radio silence. It was like he was telling us where the bathrooms were and what time lunch was going to be at. So this this is this is a big problem, and it's I would say fairly normal for these projects in their tailings ponds in northern okay. Alberta. Okay, so there's a there's a seepage monitoring system. That's one that's one issue that we talked about that in the curl context. Then for all of the other tailings ponds, the estimate is that twenty percent of the, the tailings leak someplace. Which I mean that's a huge huge amount um where does it go how does it how does it leak and where does it go uh well as i said this was kind of unaccounted for and the because these things are so huge because the monitoring data is largely in the possession of the companies and the regulator it's often hard to get at 
for someone outside of that little bubble. What they did, they basically do kind of a what's called a mass balance budget. They can account for or estimate the amount of tailings that go in. They can account for the tailings that are pumped back in that leak out. They can account for the evaporation and they basically just add up the things and say, okay, what's the volume of the tailings pond? Given these volumes, what's going in, what's coming out? What should the volume be or what rate should it be increasing? And, and so that was where the 20%, 20% is going somewhere else. And so they concluded it's probably draining through the bottom. So it, it's basically, the, I'd say the conclusion was it's effectively going out down through the tailings pond, laterally through the walls and leaking into the groundwater. And just joining the groundwater to flow wherever it's flowing. And, you know, uh, I'd say maybe, Oh, 10 years ago, eight, 10 years ago, there were reports out of Environment Canada where they were detecting chemicals, naphthenic acids and other chemicals from tailings ponds at one of the one of the mines that had appeared in the groundwater. And they basically drilled a bunch of wells between the tailings pond and the, and the river. And they could trace these chemicals all the way to it was a few meters below the the kind of the sediment water interface at the bottom of the river and you know the last point they found it it was kind of the direction was up towards the river which was a matter of meters away now the obvious inference is well it's flowing it's flowing out of the tailings ponds it's going underground in the groundwater and it's it's discharging into the river uh, industry and government at the time sort of said, well, there was no evidence that it's discharging into the river. Okay, sure. But well, how would I mean, how would they how would they know that if they don't have the the monitoring wells drilled and then they're not doing the samples that would give them the data to make that claim? Well, the, the Environment Canada scientists that did the study, they actually this was a specific study. So they went out and drilled some wells in addition to right. whatever they they may have used some wells that existed but they went out sampling and looking specifically for it so but if industry and the regulator don't go out and do that and back to kind of how do you design a proper monitoring program if you don't design that monitoring program to answer the questions that whatever the questions are you have then you're not going to get an answer to that question and so that's, I'd say, another problem in most cases that I saw in the government and the regulators. Back to what you'd said before. Well, we'll we'll take a sample once, a, four times a year, once a season, or maybe once a month, and it's very cookie cutter. Every every problem gets the same monitoring program, and it's a complete failure to understand that your monitoring program has to be designed with specific questions in mind or concerns. It's not like you can answer every question or every concern or get a an early warning on every problem with a cookie cutter approach to monitoring. You can't monitor everything everywhere. That's just so colossally expensive. There's no way. So it's a you, it's really has to be kind of a it's a very rigorous intellectual exercise to figure out okay, what are the biggest risks? What are the biggest problems? what are our indicators that we're going to watch that are appropriate indicators to tell us the nature scope scale of any problems as they come and then how do you do this and groundwater is difficult because of course you can't just go out and dip a bottle into a into a lake or a river or a stream you gotta you gotta dig a well in some cases you know 100 meters deep and so you you're really just sort of kind of, it's almost like remote sensing in a way. You have to pick these little data points and design the program in a way that the data points will draw you a literal picture of what's happening. And if it's not done properly, whether it's not enough wells or not monitoring enough, frequently enough, or not analyzing for the right chemicals, then you're not really gonna know what's going on. There's a, one of the, the themes that comes up in the many interviews I've, I've done, and, and I've probably done, I think at this point, two or three dozen for part three of the Unethical Oil series, 
and and but this showed up in part two on conventional side as well, is that the AER does a dreadful job of managing the data that is collected for it by uh, the industry. The industry, mm-hmm. there's there's grumbling. I hear, you know, I, I get this secondhand through the the scientists that I'm interviewing, or the, you know, sometimes it's an engineer or a toxicologist like Mandy Olsgaard, but. You know, the, the grumbling comes from industry. Well, look, you require us to collect all this data. We give it to you. And it's like throwing it into a black hole. You you don't do anything with it. You don't give us back any feed. You don't give us any feedback that would be useful to us, you know, to help us solve these problems. And it kind of, it leaves one with the impression that the regulator is, boy, if I was charitable, I, I would say, you know, not doing the job as well as it could. And if I was being probably more accurate and more cynical, I, I would say the the regulator doesn't have the resources and perhaps doesn't even have the interest to do the job it should have. And this, it's a, a systemic problem throughout the oil sands uh, tailing spots. Is that a fair observation? Uh, yes. And I would say, I absolutely agree that the AER has done an abysmal job on managing the data from regulatorily required monitoring being done by the companies that it regulates. And uh, so, for example, these monitoring reports, these annual reports go in, it may, I don't know if it's changed or not, but certainly when I was helping lead initially the independent monitoring agency, and then when that was moved into Alberta Environment, the Monitoring and Science Division there, uh, it was a problem because industry was not being allowed to submit data electronically. Like there was no portal for, you know, here's our monthly monitoring data. It doesn't go in automatically into the system in which it's you know, collated and put together and accessible where someone at the AER can then look at it and graph it up and figure out what's going on. There's a there's a paper report, a PDF report, and that goes in. And, uh, you know, you look at these things, It's it can be 1,200 pages of different reports and graphs and appendices. And, and so I, I am fairly certain, uh, I'm, I'm completely open to be being proven wrong, but in many cases, it goes in, someone in the AER maybe takes a look at it, but really what it appears to be the priority is just checking the box that the company X has filled its regulatory requirement to perform monitoring as indicated by the filing of this annual monitoring report. I don't know what kind of discussions go on after that, but I think it then gets filed somewhere. And I say this because at one point, uh, one of our groundwater scientists in Alberta Environment, we were meeting with AER staff, uh, the Alberta Geological Survey, and a bunch of oil sands company reps, and it had to do with groundwater data management. And the industry, I would say, was generally pissed that they were being forced to spend all this money doing all this monitoring hiring consultants to write it up, filing these reports. It's, there's, it's a fairly big regulatory obligation with real costs. And it did not appear to them that the data were being managed in a way that it was of any use to anybody. Industry couldn't you know, get consultants to access data beyond just my companies. Uh, the public couldn't, academics couldn't. And it was obvious the AER couldn't because they didn't have a management system internally that would allow them to say, take all the different companies, water, groundwater data, put it into one big file or program or visualize it to figure out what's going on on a regional basis in groundwater. Maybe include the oil sands monitoring programs, groundwater data or Alberta environments, groundwater data and see what's happening on leaf lease off lease, you know, none of that stuff was, could be done. Uh, the Alberta Geological Survey, they had pulled together as much data as they could. And it was, the data were a, a complete mess, but they, 
they did a lot of work and they came up with a regional report at one point, but very, very inconvenient and very labor intensive because of Alberta uh, AER's decision, intentional decision not to have any kind of data management program. And so to my I surprise, jump, I, want to jump in, I want to jump in here, Bill, because I, we have a little insight into this. Um, I interviewed a former a, an AER employee who was directly involved in designing and implementing the, arch, the IT architecture for all of this data management that we're talking about. And they told me, and unfortunately, I granted them anonymity because they still work in the industry and they'd, be, mm -hmm. they'd never get another job uh, if they were identified. But they, they told me that they uh, uh, pr presented uh, the AER management with a budget to build the system that was needed to do all of the things that are we were talking about and more. Whatever, yeah. the, you know, because data is everything in this. And if you can't handle the data, then you don't really know what, you can't really say to anybody that you know what's going on. Right. Uh, unless you have that. And it was a big bill and industry uh, which funds the AER, that's a whole nother issue. We'll get to that in, in other podcasts. The industry said, we're no way we're giving you that money. And so the AER management basically band-aided the existing system and they have databases that don't talk to each other and paper, you know, yep. reports, as you say, that don't ever get into the digital, digital, digitalized and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, we have an, I guess what I, my point here is we have an insider independently corroborating everything you've said. Yeah. And and I'll say at that meeting, one of the AER representatives kind of stood up and said, well, I understand what you're all saying. You know, you wanted electronic data management system. Um, we don't have any need for something like that. But if it's a big enough priority for all of you, I will take that back to my bosses and see where we can go with that. And he 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 said that. And I actually burst out laughing <laughs> because I just thought clearly he didn't understand what he just said. He's representing the regulator. He's actually engaged at a regulatory level with managing a substantial part of this groundwater issue in tailings ponds in the oil sands region. And he is saying he, and by extension, I guess the rest of the AER, they don't think they need to be able to manage the data in a way that would allow them to look at what's going on. But hey, if other people important enough, like industry and maybe independent scientists, academics, people in Alberta environment, think it's a priority, then well, we'll consider this. So back to what you'd said before about concluding they're not doing a very good job they clearly knew that they did not have this. They clearly knew the purpose of such a thing and they clearly had intentionally decided not to do it. So that's different than not doing a, a good job. That's choosing to do a very bad job. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty hard to understand how the, the regulator actually oversees an industry that it doesn't have a system to to manage the data that would tell it what the industry yeah. is doing and whether it's doing a good job or bad job. Well, I think what it says is what we discover or what industry discovers in their environmental monitoring is of, of, of no importance or relevance to our decisions. Uh, we're not really concerned about cumulative effects or not at all. And we will make our decisions in the absence of an understanding of what the monitoring data are saying. Um, and and of course, that's what what's been happening all along. Um, as to what your insider had said, I'd say that itself speaks to part of the problem. And I saw this in Spades in Alberta environment, where there's this culture in in Alberta and the government and the regulators, where when it comes to data management, everything is built from scratch internally and designed. And I don't know what the expense was that was projected for this. Uh, it probably sounded like a big number, but it probably wasn't that big a number. When you think about, okay, well, 
how many hundreds of billions of dollars in, in investment in the oil sands are going to happen? And should we know what's going on in the groundwater and tailings ponds and surface waters in, you know, X thousand square kilometers? Uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be $300, but it's not going to be $20 billion either. Um, that said, that was the situation we ran into when I got hired to help fix everything that was going wrong or had gone wrong in monitoring and science and Albert environment. Data management was a big factor because Albert environments was the same way. There's all these separate data management systems that had been designed by IT people internally and they didn't communicate well. In some cases, they could no longer access them. I don't know how that works. I think the software hardware like became obsolete and suddenly someone realized that they didn't have a version of Microsoft DOS that was from 1987 or something. I don't know. But what we did, we there are companies out there, data management companies that produce software for big complex monitoring and science programs and the oil sands monitoring program. That's what we went with. We talked to that company, we got some modifications and we basically paid a subscription. And it, and it works really well. <laughs> Data gets automatically uploaded. It's automatically vetted. You can visualize it, graph it, download it, do data dumps. It comes from all different sources. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to data management programs, especially if you don't have one. Like just starting from scratch seems like a crazy decision because it takes a very high level of expertise in a whole lot of stuff to design a, a an electronic monitoring or data management program that hits all of the needs that you need from it. And I would say there was almost no chance of anyone in government being able to do that. We have to wrap up our conversation now, Bill. So what generalizations can we take from this conversation that applies to the oil sands management of its tailings ponds in general? Well, I'd say what we've seen so far, and this this is especially in relation to the curl spill and the, you know, discharging or of tailings off lease into surface waters. Uh, it's a big problem. Groundwater contamination is clearly a big problem. Uh, AER has been asleep at the switch. Even since it became publicly known in what, February or March of, of this year, it was clear at the time as AER was issuing its, its orders, as the CEO was testifying before the parliamentary committee, they're talking about all the responses, but even in all those responses, the responses were basically ordering the company to come up with a response plan, ordering the company to do additional monitoring. I have not seen anything that suggests that a plan has been adopted that they're implementing to actually fix the problem, which is a tailings pond that is leaking at rates far beyond what was either initially thought or alternatively, the interception and recovery system is not working in the way that it was anticipated. Should that so be, no, I want to I just interrupt very quickly. The indigenous leaders have said that the, that curl is an example of what's wrong with the entire industry in one shape or another. And nobody really knows. They've, they've asked for a geotechnical audit of all tailings ponds because so much of this is just a black hole. The yep. regulator doesn't know. The companies don't know. The, the you know folks like you don't know. We just don't know. And, and is that fair to say? We, there's just too much we don't know? Uh, I would say yes. But that said, there's been, a, there's been enough work done over the years to know that there is most likely a big problem. And so I would say I agree with that statement and that call, but again, the re response can't simply be, well, we need to do a, a bunch more monitoring because a bunch more monitoring probably is going to take a couple more years. Uh, at no point has anyone considered the fact that these problems are widespread probably. It's, it's a part of doing business. Uh, it, it's not just groundwater. And 
all of these, I would call them responses, I, I could say, could be characterized as simply delays. Because of course, they're continuing to prove new projects, new expansions. There was just in the news last week or the week before, uh, McClellan Lake fan, uh, there's a commitment, a, you know, sort of it's going on to the next level of a company that is promising that it will mine half of the fan, basically this huge wetland complex. It's gonna build a barrier dam of, or a berm of some kind and essentially mine half a wetland and the other wetland it's gonna leave untouched and it'll just be perfect. I mean, and the scales are huge. And of course this fan is of real importance to regional First Nations. Uh, so these, these approval decisions are going on and they're still going on on the basis of this fictitious hope and a prayer, adaptive management, our technology is rock solid and we can engineer our way through all of this kind of stuff. When, if you look back at all of these promises, all of these technological solutions or preventions of these problems, a lot of them have never worked. A lot of the problems, it's such a, it's such a technically difficult thing. The problems arise after the approval, after the fact, after it's been operating. The AER is caught with its pants down, doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know what to do about it. I mean, we got to get out of that cycle. So, you know, absolutely, there needs to be a proper independent assessment, a hydrogeological assessment of, of all of these tailings ponds. But uh, the, there are equally big or bigger issues out there related to the scale of growth of this entire industry in that region, especially in relation, I would say, probably from the perspective of local First Nations. On that note, Bill, this has been fascinating. Uh, I will look forward to further chats with you uh, as we get on to part three, uh, get further into part three of the Unethical Oil series. Thank you very much for this. You're very welcome, Mark.